0: You are now entering Frida's World. Join us as we address various issues facing women of color in the workplace. We'll help you navigate your professional and personal life the Frida Way. World it's Frida's World. What's it, like? What's it like? Classy and Ratchet at the same time. You clash it. Like you love church music, but you f- with future that's clashing. It's Frida's World. Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of Frida's World. Happy Wednesday. Happy Hump Day. And as always, I hope you guys are having a wonderful, wonderful week so far. So I am really excited about today's show. I have a very special guest by the name of Nefertiti Austin, who is the author of a recently published book, Motherhood So White, a memoir of race, gender and parenting in America. I, you know, the conversation with Nefertiti is very robust. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. But I really thought it was important to have her on the show. Um, I was scrolling through Instagram one day and I came across this book that really just caught me off guard. And I was like, this is very interesting. Motherhood so white. What is this about? And so I kind of went in, you know, a rabbit hole, just digging, you know, trying to get some more information. And I actually DM'd. Nefertiti, who was so gracious um, in responding to me. And from then, you know, I asked her if she would love to be on the show, and she said yes. And, you know, well, that's today's show. Um, But this episode really is going to focus on one, her book, obviously, the reasons why she wrote the book, but to talk about her experience as an educated single black woman living in America who has perfectly good eggs, um, but yet made the decision to adopt Not one, but two children, and is raising them on her own. And so she talks about the, you know, the journey to that. She talks about some of the stereotypes within our community about adoption, period. Um, And, you know, and and things of that nature. And a lot of women I know who are listening, because I've talked to some of you, um, have, had some interest in the adoption process and in some interest in adopting period and fostering, but because of the way society, you know, is in a sense, we've kind of like, I don't know, we've kind of shied away from that. Um, You know, unfortunately, you know, I have certain friends who are unable to have kids because of either medical conditions um, and whatnot and, you know, some of them, you know, they talk about their love of being a mother and their love of having children, but, you know, for whatever reasons, adoption, you know, has never really been at play in the conversations. It's kind of like, if I can't have my own natural child, then I guess I, I wasn't meant to be a mother or I'm not going to be a mother. And so, you know, it's really important, um, you know, to... Take a listen to today's show to to hear Nefertiti speak about the process and about her experience Uh, because motherhood doesn't is not just about, you know, actually birthing a child. Many of us were raised by other women. We were raised by individuals who are not our mothers. Some of us were just you know, were raised by, you know, our fathers. Some of us were raised by grandmothers. Some of us were raised by aunties. And some of us were outright adopted, period, and were and were um raised by total strangers, people that had no real blood tie to us and connections to the family. And, you know, I think that we turned out great. <laughs> So, um, you know, it's 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 a very sensitive topic, I think, when we're thinking when we're talking about women and motherhood and, and and having children and biology and all this extra stuff. But at the end of the day, I think that, you know, if if the goal is to be a mother to a child, whether that child is biologically yours, whether it's a child that you foster, whether it's a child that you adopted, motherhood is motherhood. And the aim and the goal and the objective should be to be the best mother you can to that child, to be the best influence you can um, on that child and to treat that child in the best way possible. Um, I think that, you know. A lot of times people think that just having the child is what makes you the mother. There are a lot of deadbeat mothers out there who have birthed children, but they are no mother to that child. And so I think, you know, really understanding what the word mother is, what motherhood is, will really open our eyes to the process. And, you know, for myself, when I was younger, I used to always say that I wanted to adopt. I never wanted to have my own children, and it wasn't because I was told that I couldn't have kids at a young age. Nothing like that. I just, I just felt like my calling in life was to be an adoptive mother. And although I do have my son now, um, he's you know going to be thirteen years old in a couple of years. He's going to be out the house. Um, I, I'm not the most maternalistic person (laughs) in, in, in the world, but I do feel like I have a lot to offer and I feel like I have a lot to share. And will I get, you know, will I get into the fostering process one day? Possibly. Um, I don't know if I'll ever like outright adopt a child, but I definitely think that I have the heart at least to be able to foster children because, the fostering process is not very easy, you know. You you get a child, you get attached to it, and then you know the child ends up going back to its family members or you know the system or whatever the case is. It's not a permanent situation, and I know that there are a lot of people who have tried um, fostering children and could not take the heartbreak when they've gotten attached to the child and then the child had to be taken taken back. Um, I think that I was built a little bit differently and I think that that's something I can do. And so with that realization with myself, there are so many children out there who need second chance, who need chances, period. So I might look into it personally, but, um, but the show is going to focus on, you know, being a woman of color, being a professional working woman of color and um, making a decision like that. Like, what does that look like? Is there any, is there any help at the workplace, you know, for women who, who go into the adoption process or the fostering process in the same manner, um, that a woman who, you know, was pregnant, um, you know, are they, are, are there, are there similar benefits, et cetera. These are all questions that a lot of people have. Um, these are all, yeah, question that a lot of people have <laughs> when it comes to the process. And I think that, again, because of the way society kind of colors it for people of color, at least, um, there's a lack of understanding and a lack of knowledge about what adoption is and what fostering is. So definitely stay tuned to listen to Nefertiti talk about her book and to talk about, again, her journey as a single black educated woman making the decision to raise two children by herself. So before we get into that, you know, I always have my highlight of the week. And so this week's highlight of the week um, is somewhat twofold, kind of. It's twofold. Um, So Saturday night, I was given the opportunity to present one of my dear friends, Councilwoman Farrah Lewis, an award, a Leadership Channel Award, on behalf of the Metro New York chapter of the National Black MBA and it was really an honor for me to be able to present her this award because she has been a friend of mine before she was ever a councilwoman, before she was ever into politics. And just to be able to be part of her journey and to see how far she's gone um, really is a true testament to hard work and dedication. And so to be able to recognize her for all of her efforts, all of her achievements in the community was simply an honor and so fast forward to the next day because <laughs> I was on a roll this weekend you know I wasn't feeling well but I was on a roll in these streets um Sunday only like less than 12 hours later um I was able to participate and support another dear friend of mine uh Jamie Bowles who's actually the owner and operator of WJMS radio where I have my my radio show according to RP um it was Sunday was the, uh, free-to-breathe Brooklyn lung cancer walk. And I think I might have talked about Jamie before on this show, but um, she was diagnosed in December with stage four lung cancer at the age of 32, and she was recently engaged to her man. And it was one of these things that was a shock. I remember going to visit her in the hospital when she wasn't feeling well. She just thought it might have been something, you know, maybe she had some fluid in her lungs, maybe it could have been some pneumonia or some bronchitis and I was actually at the hospital with her um, you know when she when she got admitted just to do some you know routine tests just to make sure ru- rule some things out and you know she really thought that it was going to be some bronchitis or some pneumonia and I remember leaving her I think it was my maybe a Friday that I went to go visit her in the hospital and I think by the Monday or Tuesday she told me that they tested the fluid that was in her lungs and it turned out to be stage four. Now Jamie is not an individual who's ever smoked in her life. She doesn't roll with smokers. Her, you know, her parents weren't smoking in front of her when she was a kid. Um you know, she was, she's relatively healthy, healthier than me. Well, that's, I don't know if that's anything to to really go by, but she's, I mean, she's healthy. You know, she, she was athletic, et cetera, um, living a full life. And then to be hit by this, like not even stage one, not even stage two, but straight to stage four. And so the walk was on Sunday and it was important for me to be there because, you know, we we spend our time doing silly things, right? I mean, for me, I love watching Netflix. I'll take I'll take time out of my out of my busy schedule to watch a Netflix. We take time out of our lives to do the most nonsensical things. But, you know, when it comes to supporting your friends who 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 need you, who need your care, who need your love and support. I think it's really important. Even when you're not, you're tired. <laughs> I think that in some cases you make an assessment and you show up for your friends. And it was an honor for me to be there um, at the walk with her friends and family and all of us just together, just supporting Jamie. And she was one of the speakers for the event. And I'm going to actually post her speech on the um, Frida's World um, IG page tomorrow, but it was just so motivating to see somebody who was faced with such adversity Just look it in the face and say, I'm going to kick cancer in the butt and cancer is canceled and that I am still setting goals and I'm still reaching new heights and I'm not going to let this happen. You know, this 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 take me over. And I think her saying, which she took from somebody else that I can't remember is, you know, I have cancer, but cancer does not have me. And so, you know, for me, that was very motivating. And it kind of just um, reminded me of where I am in life and the opportunities that I have and how I should always strive to seize the moment and to not let things knock me down, whether it be my, you know, illnesses or not feeling well and whatnot, um, that I should continue to, 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 to dream and continue to live daringly. Um, the one thing I will say, when it comes to these types of situations that I don't always agree with is when people say, well, look at her. She has stage four cancer. So if she has cancer, you have no excuse but to continue off your life and, and to get up in the morning and to do all this extra stuff. I don't like that type of comparison model. Why? Because everybody deals with things in their own way and everybody feels differently from each other. Stage four cancer is a serious thing. Yes, but you waking up not feeling well because you overexerted yourself the next day doesn't mean that you have to be out your door, dragging your leg, limping because somebody else in the world has it, you know, quote unquote, worse than you. I don't really believe in that whole somebody has it worse than you business. I feel like everybody is going through their own thing and everybody handles things differently. You have people who have, who are afflicted with illness who are So depressed, so out of it that they don't even want to leave their house. And then you have people with the same illness who are out here fighting every single day. So I feel like, you know, that for some reason that was on my heart to say, because I find that that happens so often where we are forced to compare ourselves with others and we are for, and we are forced to like, in a sense, live somebody else's situation and that because somebody else is, is fighting and dealing with things in, a, in, in what is a socially acceptable way. Those of us who might not necessarily have that condition or might not be going through that particular way, we have no excuse. And so we always have to be on 10 and we always have to be out there doing our thing. So I don't know why, but again, I just felt like that, that needed to be said. In any event, (laughs) Um, the walk was a success. I'm actually going to have Jamie on the show, maybe in a couple weeks to talk about the walk and to talk about her experience because she's going through all of this while she's working. She actually works a couple doors (laughs) down from me. And she, I mean, every time I see her, I'm like, this girl's always smiling. She's always doing her thing. Um, And so I feel like, you know, her story is definitely going to be a motivation and inspiration to many of us out here um just trying just trying to make it in these streets. So without further ado, we are on to the meat of the show. All right everyone, I'm here with my very special guest Nefertiti Austin, who is the author of Motherhood So White, a memoir of race, gender and parenting in America. Nefertiti, welcome to Frida's World. Thank you. <laughs> now, um, just for, I guess, for those of you who might be wondering, you know, how I how I found this guest, what is this about? Um, so I actually found you, Nefertiti, on Instagram, right? Yes, you did. Yeah, I was going yes. through my Instagram, and it was, I think, your book cover. Um, you had posted your book cover, and I think that's what drew me in. Like, oh great! Yeah, it, it definitely. I was like, motherhood so white. It was very. It, I'm, I'm a curious cat, but it was just kind of intriguing to me. And so, as I was reading one of your posts, and then I think I might have even like tried to Google to see what is this book about. I was like, this is interesting, and that's what prompted me to uh, message you in your DM. <laughs>
1: Oh, cool. I love the cover, uh, Deborah Cartwright. She's the artist and she did the cover for The Hate You Give.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: it's such a sh- striking cover. I love it. So I'm glad you loved it too.
0: Cool. Oh, yeah, definitely. It definitely drew me in. It definitely was intriguing and it had me wanting to know more.
1: Okay, good. 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 <laughs>
0: So I guess, you know, as we are going on here, I just wanted to kind of get a sense of who you are, where you're from, and what prompted you to write this wonderful book.
1: Okay. Well, I am from Los Angeles, California. And I I think that in so many respects, I always like to think of myself as a late bloomer. And so when my friends were getting married and having children, mid to late 20s, I was emotionally so far away from wanting that. Mm -hmm. I thought it was great. And I did see that for myself, but just not not at the time. Mm -hmm. And so in my mid 30s, I had reached a point where I felt like I had traveled to a bunch of different countries. I worked at my own Pace. I moved, I bought cars whenever I felt like it. And I felt like I had really done everything I possibly could do. And I, something was missing. Mm-hmm. And what began to catch my eye were strollers. It was the most random oh, thing. Wow. So I, I had nieces and I had a godson, So there were children around me, but suddenly I started noticing baby things. And I, I guess really listened to my intuition because the feeling that I was experiencing was a desire for motherhood. And I was ready to be a mother. I wasn't seeing anyone at that particular moment. And I knew I wanted to adopt. And somewhere in my heart, it was very important to me that I adopt first. And I, I sort I had a plan and my plan was, okay, I will adopt and then I'll get married later and have children. And then of course, you know, you want to make God laugh, make plans, but another (laughs) (laughs) another story. So I, the idea to adopt wasn't so foreign for me. I was raised by my grandparents. My parents were part of the black power movement and both of them ended up on drugs and Had a life of crime, and so that meant that my brother and I went back and forth, back and forth for a bunch of years, and ultimately went to live with my maternal grandparents. So I had already experienced what it was like to be raised by people who didn't give birth to me. I mean, obviously, I had a biological connection, but I, but. It was my grandparents versus my parents. And my best friend is adopted. She grew up to become an adoption social worker. So for years and years, I had been hearing about children in foster care, the reasons the kids were there, what was happening, and also that Black boys were harder to adopt because there was a stigma around Black boys that these boys would grow up and be out trying to rob people Mm -hmm. they would be you know menace a menace to society things of that nature and so with all of these things kind of came together I was ready to be a mom I was ready to adopt and I knew that given my childhood how I was raised that I was that I could do it I felt like I can do that.
0: Okay, so I know that you said that at the time you were not seeing anybody, so you went in through this process being a single black woman.
1: Yes, I did.
0: And so if you could talk a little bit about that experience, you know, did you get any pushback from family and friends? You know, I'm sure there were many questions as to your decision to go about th- about this route.
1: Right. Well, I intentionally only told people I know who would be supportive mm-hmm. and <laughs> because <laughs> I, my mind was made it up. So they were not going to change my mind. Okay. And, but I did not want to hear any, I didn't want to hear any negativity. I didn't want to hear any comment. I wasn't asking anyone permission mm-hmm. to choose the path to motherhood. That was important to me. So I told my close friends, I told a cousin and then found out that another cousin was in the process of adopting at the same time. So that was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And then later on, I told my grandparents and my um, my aunt and brother that that was what I was planning to do. And so naturally, there was pushback my my grandfather's concern really was childcare, because Mm I think in his mind, it it was like, okay, we can't raise another set of kids. So I had to (laughs) assure him that I would not be dumping another child, another generation on them. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother's concern was, basically, you're never in one place. Like when you get tired of this child, you cannot give the child back. And I'm like, Mm. well, I've had dogs for years. I didn't give them back. Like, (laughs) why would I do that? I'm I'm clear on what this means. And uh, I had friends who laughed and my guy friends were, my black male guy friends would, had a couple who were like, well, what do you know about raising a black man in America? And Mm -hmm. you can't do it by yourself. And I was like, are you kidding me? Black women do it every single day. Yeah. And, I don't see you stepping up to do it. So, I mean, it seems to me like you would be happy that somebody is willing to intervene and, you know, disrupt that pipeline, school to pipeline to prison. I mean, yeah. come on. And um, and so, you know, it was it was a range of reactions from people. But I think because I was so clear on what I wanted and that I was doing it, that the naysayers mostly kind of fell off. They were like, okay, oh, well.
0: (laughs) So So now this book is really about your journey um, of, you know, going through the adoption process, um, talking about, I guess, your experiences, um, you know,
1: then and now. Right. It's, the actual process is a smaller part of the book. Mm -hmm. The book is mainly about the racial classification, the, the racial hierarchy of motherhood in America, mm-hmm. and that Black women, Black mothers, we find ourselves at the bottom of the whole trajectory for mm-hmm. parenting, which is crazy given our history in this country. So we're brought here, we are enslaved, we are raising and suckling white babies when we couldn't take care of our own. So we've got a very close relationship with white people in this country. And yet our narratives, our perspectives are either ignored, erased or more or less not even existent. So when I was ready to become a mother and I did what I always do, which was seek information Mm -hmm. and I kept coming up short. I couldn't find anything at the bookstore, couldn't find anything at the library. And on the internet, there were a few blogs that Black mothers had started, but we didn't have like this big treasure trove of information specific to Black women. So it's really looking at how motherhood and mother is read white, even in the 21st century.
0: Mm, okay. And so why do you think that is like, why do you think that there is such a disparity Um within our community, specifically when we're talking about, you know, motherhood, adoption, etc. cetera?
1: Well, I know when I was seeking representation, like for an agent and um, early on, I was told by agents that my experience was marginal, that while this is important and while you are a good writer, your experience is marginal, i.e. we can't sell your story. And so That told me that if my experience was marginal, then that um, and and not just my personal experience, but just mothers of color in general, Mm -hmm. then there is no space for us to be visible. So if Uh, we are seen as marginal, then we are not seen on the big screen mm -hmm. or the small screen Our faces are not splashed across magazines, unless, you know, we're Shonda Rhimes, who's a single (laughs) black woman who, you know, if if I'm that, then sure. But the lion's share of the attention typically goes to white women. Mm -hmm. And then I think the other thing at play, because so many, especially with transracial adoption is so popular now, um, white people adopt Children of color, black children, that whole sort of white savior, yeah, uh, sort of motif comes back into play over and over. So there's there's seemingly no room for us, which again doesn't make any sense.
0: And it's interesting you say that because I I agree with you in the sense that I really haven't seen any representation um, of especially single black mothers, right? You know, coming out and talking, you know, talking about whether they're adopting or not. What I do, you know, tend to hear about a lot because of our community is the foster care system. And yes. so people are, you know, being foster parents and signing up to do that. But in terms of the actual adoption of children, you know, especially professional young women um, yes. coming out and and saying, I'm going to adopt a child, you know, right. on my own, Without, mm-hmm. you know, by myself and, you know, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to be both mother and father to this child. I'm going to give this child a, a second chance in a sense at life. You don't really hear that that story. You don't see that story.
1: Right. I think, well, for, I think a couple of reasons. One, in our community, we tend to take in relatives, Um Immediate relatives, like in my family, my Mm -hmm. brother and I were raised by grandparents, or we take in extended relatives, cousins, we take in neighbors, church members. And so there is that point of reference Mm -hmm. that, and so we also have, I think, a complicated relationship with mom in the Black community. Mm -hmm. Like we love her and then we hate her at the same time. So (laughs) we, but we are not desirous of having her parental rights terminated Mm -hmm. and so what we do is we make it work within our families i'm going to just bring that baby over here i'm going to take care of that child you go take care of you so we adopt at smaller numbers okay and so it it seems in mainstream culture that we are not adopting but we we actually do adopt it's just our numbers are different and and culturally we approach it very differently. And I think for the professional for professional black women, for people I know who said, Oh, I really want to adopt, or I thought about adopting, I wanted I I I wanted to, but they got talked out of it, either Mm -hmm. church, their family. There are friends. There's a lot of fear around, oh, how are you going to do it by yourself? You can't do it by yourself. You're going to struggle financially, emotionally, whatever the case may be. Uh, you won't get a man yeah, or a partner. I've
0: heard that a lot, too.
1: Yes, you're, you're going to have baggage. And I think black and white people have bought into the myth that the children in foster care are somehow defective, like there's something wrong with them. And are you sure you want to take that on? Are you sure?
0: You know. Yeah. No, and I definitely agree with that. Um, it's interesting enough. When I was younger, I used to uh, tell my mom all the time that I wanted to, you know, adopt a child. I didn't really want to actually have a child of my own. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, I used to say that all the time. And I, I recall my mother would say things like that to me, like, "Well, you know, do you not want the child to see a child that looks just like you? Do you not want to see your features in this child, your mannerisms in this child?" Um, right. And I think when it when it came to fostering. I had, you know, randomly spoke about this with my family once, and the first thing that they would say is, you know, have you seen the news? Did you hear about that boy that stabbed his mother in the sleep? And they're asleep. sleep, (laughs) yep. it's all it's always this you know stabbing them in the sleep so yes,
1: always sorry,
0: yep. it's the same I think it's the same little boy through generation yep. after generation
1: <laughs> Yes it's terrible I mean in LA I feel like once a quarter the LA Times does a hit piece on the foster care system here and mm-hmm. I know it's not just Los Angeles yeah. I'm sure it's all over the country and it's always like the worst of the worst of the worst. Every now and then there'll be a nice story about a family and, oh, everything is beautiful and it's great. But typically – it's always the most scandalous, sensationalized story. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why people just fall for that. And they just say, Oh, yeah. Oh, no, I don't want that. I don't want to get stabbed in my sleep.
0: Yeah, they, you know, they really do. And I think some of it because I did try to, de- you know, dig further a little bit with you know my relatives, like, why do you think that? And, you know, mm-hmm. the first thing that they would say is, well, we don't know their family history. We don't know the family history yes. of this child, they could have, their parents could have been, you know, psychopath. Their psychopaths, could have you know been evildoers and yeah. now you have this child in your house where you don't really know the DNA. And so I feel like you know hearing that over and over again, many of us who were kind of like, yeah, we we, we really want to go down this router like, ooh, maybe we should think twice about this.
1: Exactly. And what people don't know is that when a perspective Couple or a single person wants to adopt. In California, everyone's a foster parent first. Mm-hmm. And then if you want to adopt, you are given a form and you get to say if the mother or the father has a history of schizophrenia or alcoholism mm-hmm. or bipolar, whatever the case may be. Like these are deal breakers for me. Mm -hmm. These are the things that I feel like I can absolutely deal with. If the child presents with X, Y, and Z, you know, yes or no. Also the foster care system, the, the public adoption system has a lot of services so that if the child has maybe delays, physical delays or intellectual delays or emotional delays or what have you, there are Regional centers and UCLA has a partnership with the Los Angeles Department of Children and Family Services, where you can take your child and get free services. So there's a lot of support if the child needs it, but they don't necessarily always present with something. And the biggest, the biggest uh, game changer for the children is the home environment. Mm -hmm. And so even children who were born drug exposed or even drug addicted, they've done some studies on like the whole mythical crack baby thing. And it's the environment that really keeps all of that madness going. But those children who are placed in calm, stable, loving environments by third or fourth grade, you can't tell the difference between Mm -hmm. a child who was not born With those issues,
0: yeah, and it's interesting you say that because I actually had a a friend of mine that I went to law school with. Um, Her and her fiance, um, you know, decided that they wanted to you know become foster parents, and so they lived in Mm -hmm. they live in Maryland. And so they were able to fight, I think he might have been four years old. He came from a real broken you know family. I think both I think mother was on drugs. I don't know where the father was. And the child did present with a lot of issues. It looked like he might have even been abused because he had, you know he was afraid of touch. Um, and so he was really, you know, really, really, um, you know, going through it in a sense. And so, Mm -hmm. but my friend, you know, and her fiance, very, very loving people. She was patient enough to, you know, to really just, you know, show this, this young boy love, love that it looks like he either never experienced before. And as time went on, she had him for, um, several months, and they had, I mean, she would, she wanted to actually adopt the, um, the young boy and he was progressing. They had him in martial arts. Like he was doing so well, but then mm-hmm. like you were talking about, you know, uh, I guess the connection with the, the, the mothers in the community, sure. the foster system, although the mother wasn't a hundred percent, they mm-hmm. sent the child back to the environment that he had come from. And so, you know, that situation, though, crushed them to the point where, you know, they're like, I don't think we can do the fostering anymore. Sure. Just because of the way the system, unfortunately, works. So I think when you were talking earlier about research, that's mm-hmm. really important.
1: Yes, because when you, when you start as a foster parent, and this is, you know, perhaps a downside of going the public adoption route, because everyone is legally a foster parent first, you go into it knowing that there is a chance that you will not get to keep the child. And so it's a very fine balancing act between love, love, love the child, really take care of them, treat them as if they are your own. Mm -hmm. But at the same token, you are preparing your heart, your mind and preparing the child that to return to, if not the parent perhaps a relative Mm -hmm. and that can be so tricky and so heartbreaking definitely to hear those stories but there are a lot of children who are legally freed meaning that they are in no danger to be danger of being returned to their families and I use the word danger not in a negative sense Mm -hmm. I don't want to get in trouble with anyone but you know Mm -hmm. the the foster parents would be more than likely able to keep the the child or the children.
0: Okay. Now I want to talk about um, when you first um, adopted your son, who at the Mm -hmm. time, I believe was six
1: months old when you adopted him. He was six months when we met and then he moved in two weeks later and it was two years before the adoption was final. Ah. So I was foster mother for two years. Okay.
0: Now being a single black young woman in LA, Mm -hmm. like, you know, working, how, how did, how did you manage all of that? Because I know that there are a lot of, um, single professional working women who are listening to this show who again might have interest in doing this, but because they're single, they're wondering how this will affect their work life. You know, are there any, um, you know, any, I guess, avenues with, you know, or I don't want to say, um, cons- I'm trying to figure out the words, like I'm losing it, but are there any, mm-hmm. you know, is there any, anything set in place in the workplace or any um, thing that they can, I, I don't know why I'm not getting this word, but basically any I, support, any support that it. the job can, you know, provide for women who are going through this particular process.
1: Definitely. Most corporate jobs and I think for people who work for the government or maybe work in education, typically the leave is the same whether or not you've adopted or you are pregnant and you go on maternity leave. So the, so the leave, I believe, is the same. Okay. And um, so that would be something that a person should check with their HR just to find out what that would look like, how, many, how much time would they get off. In my case, when my son came, I was working part-time for a nonprofit and I ended up I stopped working there. I am my my, my day job is I'm an adjunct history instructor. So mm-hmm. I have always sort of kind of cobbled work together. Okay. <laughs> to make <it> make sense. <laughs> and so I actually stopped working. I I really wanted to spend some time with him.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so financially I did take a hit, but that was my choice to do that. Mm-hmm. And then the semester started. And so our little honeymoon for a couple of weeks, it, it didn't last very long because I did go back to work, but I was only working uh, uh, maybe two days a week. I, I can't remember two, three days a week, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate to find a very wonderful in-home daycare. So, there were only six children in the daycare. Okay. So, it was almost like he got to be in a home away from home. And because my hours were so flexible, it, it felt like I was home, even though I did have to physically go out into the world and work. But again, adoption is mostly treated the same way maternity leave is treated or if someone's taking like a family leave.
0: Okay. And so I know your son is now 12, right?
1: Yes. And yes. I
0: see that you have a second child who is about I six sure years old. Do.
1: She is six, not regular six, because she's almost seven. Yes. Oh, wow.
0: <laughs> and so was she also adopted?
1: Yes, I got her at 10 months old.
0: Oh wow. So I
1: met her at 6 months. She was 6 months old and coincidentally they share a mother. Okay. So that so that makes it nice. So to your point earlier about people being concerned about, oh, does this child, will this child look like me? Will they have their mannerisms? Okay. So first of all, if you spend any time around anyone, you start to pick up each other's mannerisms. Mm -hmm. And I think people also start to look alike as well. (laughs) My daughter and I look like twins and my son and I favor a lot and I have a bunch of freckles and now he has a lot of freckles. So I like to believe I gave him my freckles. <laughs> I gave him my lactose intolerance. Oh gosh. <laughs> And a, a few other little quirks that I have, I certainly have have passed them on. So, <laughs> and when I, I look at them, I've never looked at them and thought, oh, this child doesn't look like me or doesn't favor or we don't match or anything like that. I just look at him. I look at her and I just, I see I see us reflected back.
0: Oh, and that's a beautiful story. I feel like there's and this I think this that's the that's the importance of, you know, sharing your story so that people can actually see like the beautiful side of fostering and adoption.
1: Oh, definitely. I wouldn't trade it. I mean, it was a ride, that's for sure. It's not easy. It's a mm-hmm. lot of paperwork. It's a very intrusive process. Mm-hmm. Once you sign up, you have a social worker who comes. They do, the, it, it's called a home study, okay. and they sit and they ask you everything. What's your relationship like with your parents? What's your relationship like with your siblings? What's your, your job situation like? What's your support system like? Because what they really want to know is can you really. Take care of a child and not just financially, but emotionally and physically. And what's your support system like? Because everyone needs support. And what Mm -hmm. they don't want to happen is a child be placed with you. And then, you know, you figure out, oh, my God, I made a mistake. I, I can't do it. And then the child has to return to foster care. That's like a horrible thing to happen. So it's a very intrusive process, but it's worth it. Okay.
0: Now, so you said that both children actually have the same mother. Now, do they have any uh, contact with the mother? Do they know that they were adopted?
1: They know that they are adopted. No, we do not have any contact with the birth mother. The adoption is closed, though. We do have contact with two of the younger siblings, and it's a it's a large family Mm -hmm. and very big case and the birth mother i actually never met her my son would have visits with her so that's the other aspect of being a foster parent you are required to take the children for visits with their biological family members so it could be the mother if she's not available it could be the father, it could be grandma or okay. a, another relative so that the so that they have that connection and then you can decide once you're finished with the whole process if you want an open adoption and be able to maintain those ties or not in our case it did not make sense to maintain ties with the Birth family, but we did ma- maintain a relationship with two of the siblings.
0: Okay, good. Yeah, I think that's important to know because, you know, a lot of times I think um, we get our information from television yes. and what we see. Television yes. kind of colors our viewpoint on what adoption process is and what actually happens. So it's always good to really hear from somebody who actually went through this process what it really looks like and i know that the open adoption versus closed adoption is is something that comes up in conversation all the time
1: absolutely and people have to make the best decision for their family and so you know the the agency foster family agencies or if you go public or private you know everyone has their opinion mm-hmm. about what that should look like and the reasons why an adoption should re- remain open or why an adoption should be made should be closed and I made the best choice for my family now I told my children very early before they could even talk that they were adopted so that there's they know just as their skin is brown they are adopted it's not a big deal Mm -hmm. I created photo albums. Uh, They have pictures. They know what their birth parents look like, their siblings. They know their names. And the information that I have, I have shared with them in an age-appropriate fashion so that they know. And as they get older, I give a little bit more information, a little bit more information just to kind of demystify the whole thing so that they're not thinking, oh, my mom is a princess somewhere. My dad is this king, and they live in a castle. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) They're looking for me. So it's like... That's not quite how it works.
0: Yeah, because that could certainly be a myth sometimes. Children, you know, have very wild imaginations. And so (laughs) I can definitely see them thinking that my father is the king of Scotland or something. Yes, (laughs) yes. Okay. And so I guess... um, you know, one thing I wanted to ask with respect to, you know, all your experiences being, you know, still a single black woman who is raising a boy and a girl, one who's about to, who's about to be a teenager. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So We already know we're going through challenging territory Pray for me. <laughs> yes, yes. I have one in the same boat. So I am I am right here in the fight with you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, man. <sighs> So, how, so to the women out there who, you know, are young, Black, professional, working, really just, you know, trying to, like, they were kind of like you, like, they know what they want right now. They're ready for that next step. They did everything that they had wanted to do. You know, what is your advice to, you know, a young woman listening who is thinking about, you know, either fostering or going full-blown adoption, um, you know, especially in this day and age?
1: I think that... Any woman who wants to adopt should do it. I think the most important way to be able to make an informed decision is to not only get information and not from people who haven't adopted, but like talk to people who've actually done it and to take the classes. It doesn't cost anything to take the classes. So you go to an orientation and then you sign up for classes. You do have to pay for a background check, CPR, that sort of thing. But Mm -hmm. for less than $200, you you can go through the entire process. And at the end, you can make an informed decision about whether or not this is something you really want. And I think they've shortened the training now. I think it's 30 hours instead of 33 hours. And that's Mm -hmm. spread over six weeks. Okay. And I think that it would be time well spent because The information you get, yeah, you can Google it and you can get some stuff, but you have real life people who come in, uh, children who were either never adopted. So you have speakers come in and they shared their experiences. Mm -hmm. You have people who come in, birth mothers or birth fathers who lost their children and how that felt and what they were going through and how their children were either reunited with them or... They were not. Mm -hmm. And I go in and I speak as well as an adoptive parent, as a resource parent. And I think what happens to women, and I think especially black women, is we really get talked out of that, out of adopting because of fear. Mm -hmm. And so I just think that a person should trust their intuition and allow that to override any fears that they have. Um, I'll give you another example. I was on jury duty and uh a lady and I we struck up a conversation and her son was in college and she was saying how she and her husband she's like in hindsight we should have had another child and we just didn't think that we could afford it and she's like I regret that we didn't and that was really what kind of pushed me over the edge to get another child because that was not part of my plan. Mm-hmm. But so happy that I listen to her because I thought, well, A, I didn't want to have just one child, but I did not want to have any regrets. I never wanted to look back and be like, wow, I let fear of anything keep me Mm -hmm. from having the family that I wanted.
0: Yeah. And I think that that's what's important. And you had mentioned it, you know, earlier is that, you know, you knew you wanted to be a mother and, you know, being a mother doesn't necessarily mean it has to be biological. And I know offline, you know, I um, had asked, you know, in terms of your decision to adopt, you know, whether that Mm -hmm. was because, you know, you couldn't have kids of your own or if that was just a free choice. Right. And because a lot of a lot of people when they think of adoption, they automatically think, oh, you just couldn't have kids.
1: Right. As opposed to it being a choice. Right. So for me, it was absolutely a choice. And as I mentioned, the original title of my book was My Eggs Are Fine, I adopted anyway. Mm-hmm. Because what was most important was that I answer the call to motherhood through adoption and that was what I did. And it didn't have anything to do with a man. It had nothing to do with my ovaries. We were all good. Yeah,
0: and I think that's really important, important to say because I feel like even with these women who are thinking, you know, I would love to adopt. their, you know, and we're talking about adoption, and we're talking about your book. And in the back of their minds, are probably like, Ah, oh, maybe she couldn't have kids, and that, and this is, and this is why. This is what the end right. result was. But right. your eggs are fine.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: your eggs was... are fine, and it was a personal choice. Yes. Um, Yeah. And I think that, you know, you know, what you said with fear being the driving force behind, you know, a lot of people's decision not to move forward with adoption, um, you know, with you know, doing research and really just, you know, not just listening to people, but actually taking the class, taking the course. um, I think that will hopefully, and having more people like you share the stories, you know, whether it be through writing of books or actually, you know, panel discussions, but really just pushing it out there. I think hope, you know, hopefully that will give people the courage to move forward with, you know, their desires to be mothers.
1: Yes, I definitely hope so. And I hope that people, who have adopted or fostered will be open to sharing their stories as well because i think the best gift we can give each other as women is is honesty
0: mm-hmm.
1: and transparency about our situation i mean whether it's a miscarriage or people who pursue surrogacy or whatever the case may be the whole maternal health and and becoming a mother just in general i think those are important conversations and ways that we can uplift each other just by being very honest, like this is my situation, or this is where I'm at, this is what I'd like to do, And just supporting whatever the decision is, even if the decision is, I don't want children. There are lots of women who don't want kids and that's fine too.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, where we come from a culture that, you know, that's the first question, you know, Mm -hmm. everybody's asking a young woman who, I mean, even myself, I have my son, he's going to be 13 and I'm still single. I don't have any other kids. And I, I still get the question now, when are you having the second one? Mm, not do you mm-hmm. want to have a second one? Right. Like, when are you having the second one? So, you know, the point, yeah. qu- you know, our, it, we're just very too, sometimes we're a little too invasive um,
1: uh-huh. with our
0: questions. And that definitely is uncomfortable for a lot of women. Like I have a friend who may or may not be able to have kids. I actually have several friends who actually can't have kids medically. But because of the way the culture and society, again, depict adoption, they, and their their desires to be a mother, but in their minds, that's not possible because they can't have a child themselves. And I right. think that it's really, really sad because, you know, we have women like you and many other women who are thriving in motherhood, who are, you know, ex- happy about their decisions, who are doing well. And it's sad that there are a lot of women out there who think that if they can't have it themselves, then they, you know, that's they lost their chance.
1: Right, right. Yes. And it's definitely not the case. And I make a point to say, and people to look at us because we're same race, adopted family. So you Mm -hmm. don't know that my kids are adopted unless I disclose that. Mm -hmm. And when I do disclose it, sometimes I will meet um, women who say, oh, I wanted to do that. And I always say, well, it's not too late. You know? Yeah. you You can do it. Yeah. There are lots ex- of kids who need a home. <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> so. You know, it, it, I don't think there's, there's not like an age stop, right? Where it's like, no, if, <laughs> no. So I think that's really important for people to understand, too. Like you said, there's always children. And from what I hear, you know, a lot of times it's the, uh, you know, the older children are a little harder to adopt because people are so um, into babies. Is that true or is that just the TV, you know, speaking?
1: No, that part's true. That's okay. definitely true. Uh, multiples, and that would be, uh, sibling sets, you know, mm-hmm. two kids, three kids, four. Um, and certainly an old, older child that could be someone who is age two and up is mm-hmm. considered older, four and up. So it's interesting what we define as older. Yeah. And sometimes the children have been in multiple foster homes. And for the people I know who have adopted quote unquote older kids and have had some challenges often it was because the the adults didn't plan accordingly so Mm. if you are going to adopt an older child you have to be able to put the time in so it can't be you get the child on friday and because you found a great school or you found a great program for them you think you're going to drop them off and everything's great from your perspective because you're an adult Adults often forget that, oh, this child has suffered the loss of their birth parents, loss of everything they know. Maybe they've gone to multiple homes and Mm -hmm. I'm now expecting them to call me mom and do what I say and it be an easy, smooth transition. So I think sometimes people have very unrealistic expectations about what it means to adopt an older child, even an infant. I mean, it takes time. It's an adjustment period. Mm -hmm. And folks have to be willing to take the time to invest in the children.
0: Yeah. Definitely. So, where can we get your book? Where you know, I, I'm sure people are just like, "Man, I'm I'm dig I'm waiting to dig into this book. Where can we find your book?"
1: Oh, thank you for asking. So, <laughs> Motherhood So White: A Memoir of Race, Gender, and Parenting in America is available everywhere books are sold. Oh. Your local <laughs> independent bookstore, Audible books, Barnes and Noble, all right, Amazon. So they're all, all over the country, anywhere. All right. I definitely
0: got mine on Audible because I'm now starting okay. getting into, um, r- you know, listening. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> listening well, on the train. It. Yeah. I ride the train. You know, that, that's the way I commute into work. So my hour ride is used listening to books. Um so I, I, I was actually very very excited when I saw that I actually intended to to get the hardcover. I was like, wait, there is an audible, <laughs> but I think I still will get the hardcover because although I like to listen, I like to like every book that I listen to. I actually reread the hardcover because I also have to see the words. Very weird.
1: (laughs) Very interesting. I have another friend who said the same thing. She does both, but I'm like, wow, okay.
0: (laughs) Because I feel like I'm missing something because sometimes, you know, when you're listening, there are points where it's a passive listen and you feel like you miss certain gems. But when you're reading it, it's like, ha, you know, your eyes are on the page. So... Okay. Yes. (laughs) That's my thing, but... (laughs) Okay, Okay, great. So, and um, in terms of social media, how can (laughs) we find you on Instagram? Are you on Twitter?
1: I am on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Mm -hmm. And as you know, if you write to me, I will respond. Yes.
0: And she responded with the quickness. I'd not have to wait two weeks.
1: No, <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't like to make people wait. So if I if I see it, I will respond to
0: it. Okay, cool. And so what is your handle on social media?
1: Let's see. On Instagram, it is I am Nefertiti Austin. And my Facebook page for my book is Nefertiti in Austin. And Twitter, at nefertiti austin
0: okay now are there plans for a second book or are we are we already writing a second book
1: i have been asked to write a children's book for children in foster care because i think there's one can you imagine just one for all the thousands of children in foster care one book that's published um maybe there's some that are uh self-published but um So I am looking into that. I have a couple of articles that I will be writing soon. And as far as books go, thinking about what would be like the next step. So a book I started a couple of years ago was a collection of um, interviews of single black people throughout the country who have adopted it with their picture because okay. I wanted black people to get this book and again, see themselves on the page like, Oh, okay. And read their story. Cause my book is my story. Mm-hmm. And, and while culturally there are things that I think that any black person listening to would be like, Oh yep, yeah, that's true. That's right. But there are differences because we are not a monolithic community. We are very diverse. Yes. And so I would love to put together a book of very diverse interviews of people who have adopted and, uh, you know, it wouldn't be everyone, of course, but enough variety where people could really see themselves like, oh, okay, they did that. That sounds like me. I can do that too.
0: Okay. Well, I can say that I'm definitely inspired from your story. Like I said, as soon as I saw the 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 book cover, I read a little bit about it. I'm like, this is very interesting and it drew me in and it's you know it's something that I I, like I said when I was a kid, I that that was my thing. I was like, I'm not having kids you know on my own. I'm I'm going to adopt. But then I kinda left that alone. But then as I'm getting older, I'm in my thirties and I'm hearing a lot of my friends You know, wanting to, to go there, but you know, they're, they're being held back. I think that this is a very inspiring story. Um, you know, just you doing it as a single black woman, you, you doing it and you did it twice
1: and you're doing it well. No, so I, don't, I definitely, I don't know. well, but I definitely, some days are better than others. <laughs>
0: well, yeah. I mean, that that's parenting in general, right?
1: <laughs> yes, it is. Yes.
0: Absolutely. Uh, but, but I definitely commend you for, you know, sharing your story and really bringing awareness to, you know, adoption, fostering, and, and just the fact that you can be a single
1: black woman and do it. Yes, you absolutely can. It's nothing holding you back.
0: All right. Well, Nefertiti, thank you so much for being a guest on the Frida's World podcast. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. And like I said, I feel like your story is going to inspire a lot of women to, you know, go through the process and just reevaluate their decisions.
1: Well, I hope so. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you. You're welcome.
0: You're welcome. And so... With that being said, everyone, it is a wrap for this week's episode of Frida's World Podcast. Please be sure to follow me on IG at Frida's World, F-R-E-E-D-A-S underscore world. Or you can send me an email at Rita at Frida's dot com. And with that being said, speak to you guys next week. Bye. It's Frida's World. Classy and ratchet at the same time, you clash it Like you love church music but you f*** with future, that's clatch it It's Frida's World